Here at the Sociology of Everything podcast, we acknowledge the people of Ghana Yarta, whose land this episode was mainly produced on, and whose past and present elders we pay our respects to. Hi, I'm Eric Sue. And I'm Louis Everest. And we're Lou and the Sue, and this is the Sociology of Everything podcast, brought to you by UniSA, the university that evidently has a koala on one of its campuses. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not just one, by the way. No. Well, I don't know. It may only be a couple, because I think they're quite territorial. Yeah. So I don't know how close I get, but you, you see it a fair <laughs> bit in summer because it comes down because it gets super thirsty when it's like over 30 yeah. degrees and the security guards put out water for it. So it that. comes down and drinks the water. It's super cute. Yeah. Koalas aren't dangerous, are they? Do no. they ever get like feisty? Oh, they do. And they make, um, during a certain time of year when they're frisky, let's say, uh, they make this real guttural noise nice. kind of like a grunting like a uh, uh, yeah. like, <laughs> like that and um, i used to live in the hills and it sets my dogs off uh, okay. <laughs> they hear it and they just start barking and going going pretty uh pretty over the top about it <laughs> anyway right. cool in this episode we're going to look at the work of david beer specifically his article in new media and society titled power through the algorithm participatory web cultures and the technological unconscious and this article isn't just very well cited. It has a lot of interesting things to say about the ways in which algorithms have come to dominate our lives, what it does to our understanding of power. And also, it helps us to understand what's happening in the new media landscape that we find ourselves in. Beer's starting point in this article is on the topic of Web 2.0 technologies. We've covered this topic in a previous episode, but those who haven't listened to those episodes, Louis, can you give a very quick explanation of what Web 2.0 technologies are? Yeah, it's funny because these days we've become so used to Web 2.0, we don't even really think about the term anymore, but it's referring to those forms of kind of online activity in which there's a high degree of user-generated content. Hmm. So it's like... Facebook and Twitter and all forms of social media where people are participating. They're generating yeah. a lot of the content. They're uploading qu uh, clips. They're making comments and all that sort of stuff. And I suppose if you think about that versus the more kind of early and traditional web 1.0. Yeah, web 1.0. It's web 1.0 is more sort of like traditional media in terms of newspapers and television broadcasts yeah. where it's like an official site will be developed yeah. and then that will generate content that then gets distributed to the audience. Audience, and it's quite a one-way thing, whereas Web 2.0 is more of a two-way participatory thing. Now, Beer notes that when Web 2.0 technologies first emerged, there was a lot of enthusiasm and optimism for them. And it may sound weird now, a couple of decades later, but at the time, there was genuine hope and there was genuine optimism for these technologies having a lot of democratic and empowering potentials. In what way was that true, Louis? Well, if you think about what Web 2.0 provides, it provides an avenue for people to be involved in the public debate and discourse. Mm. People who potentially couldn't have gotten on TV or, I mean, yeah. I can't walk into a newspaper and say, hey, I'm going to write an article today. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> That's That's like, right. Get out of our office, please. That's stop right. stop yeah. coming in yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> but what I can do is I can get on my computer and I can write a blog or I can make yeah. a comment on a newspaper article yeah. on an online web page. So it's quite a democratizing thing, maybe. I mean, even imagine the societies that don't have as much of that at the moment. 
We might think of, for example, the country of North Korea. The people there more or less aren't able to communicate with one another digitally. They rely on sources of information that mainly come from the authorities. And so you can imagine if social media took hold there, this might actually challenge the existing power structures. Mm. And I think a lot of commentators at the time were just very hopeful that this is what Web 2.0 technologies would bring. It would allow people to feel more empowered. It would allow them to connect with one another in a more substantial, meaningful way. But, and this is a, this is kind of the point of Beard's <laughs> article, there might be actually new forms of power. There might be new forms of power inequalities that are instituted by Web 2.0 technologies. And that's the argument that he wants to advance, that we can't just think of Web 2.0 technologies as having these great democratic potentials. There's also a dark side to it as well. And to help us understand what some of these dark sides, some of these downsides, some of these limitations are, Beer appeals to a lot of interesting discussions that have been happening about the way in which new media technologies have transformed the social landscape. He looks at the work of Scott Lash in particular, but he also references other authors like Nigel Thrift, Catherine Hales, Scott Burroughs, and others. And I think we could do worse than start where he does by examining how ubiquitous new media technologies are. So he wants to underscore just how prevalent media technologies are in our lives. And he makes this really interesting point that I want us to have a chat about, Louis, about how new media technologies are no longer simply just reflective or representing the lives people lead. There's a sense in which they've come to constitute the lives we lead and our social experiences. What is he actually trying to say there? I think there are two parts to what he's trying to say there. The first part is simply that new media technologies are around us a lot more often than old media technologies. Yeah. You can walk away from your television. You can put your newspaper down. You can escape into a world without old media around you. But with new media, you pretty much always have your smartphone. You're always engaging with new media in some way. So that's the first part. But the second part, which is the more interesting point, is that the way in which power is expressed by new media technologies, like you said, is a constitutive form of power in that it sort of produces parts of our life. It creates parts of our life in some way. So, for instance, when you search for things on your smartphone, it's not neutral, the results that come up. There's some form of power at play behind the scenes that influences what results come up on your smartphone. There's something that influences what information you receive about the world. Louis, have you been to a lot of concerts recently? I mean, not recently, (laughs) but do you go to music concerts? I do. You do? Yeah. What happens when, like, an act goes on? Well, this is actually a pet peeve of mine because I'm pretty sure I know what you're going here. And it's one of my most hated things in the world because I'm old enough to remember concerts pre-smartphones and where you could actually see what was going on on the stage. And now all you see is a sea of phones in the air blocking your view. You just want to strangle everyone in between you and the musician. Yeah. Do you know what I really (laughs) dislike, Louis? When people like film the actual act and then they turn it on to themselves, you know? (laughs) Uh, And so it's like, you know, they're they're watching the act and the acts are playing, you know, they're... And they and they go, Woo! 
<laughs> and they kind of are like showing themselves enjoying the concert. There's like this whole production of them not just filming what's going on, but filming them kind of like enjoying the thing they just filmed. So are you saying that their behavior at the concert, that what what it means to go to a concert and see a band is being reshaped and remolded by the presence of the media technology? Yeah. And you can also see this when people like travel overseas or they travel to someplace and they're trying to find very Instagrammable shots. Mm. And in fact, if they themselves don't get that Instagrammable shot, they feel somehow disappointed. Mm. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. And it, that's another pet peeve of mine. Maybe this could just be an episode of my pet peeves is I hate the feeling of there being an experience or a space that's designed for a kind of mediated gaze for an Instagrammable photo as opposed to just being there and experiencing it. Yeah. There's a certain winery in the McLaren Vale that yeah. has moved away from what a winery traditionally feels like and it has things like a bus there that has photos. You can go onto nice. the bus to get photos of you doing your tasting and then, nice. you know, there's perfect yeah. lawns with, like, sets pretty much. It feels so fake to me. Yeah, but- so new media technologies, they've come to constitute how we live our lives. They're not simply just reflective. They're not, like, just incidental. They're not sort of things we do on the side, they are kind of the main course. Mm. Now, according to Beer, there are consequences to this new media landscape we find ourselves in. And one of those is that it institutes new forms of power. To articulate his thoughts on this topic, Beer appeals to the work of Scott Lash, the noted UK sociologist. And Lash has a really interesting concept called post-hegemonic power. And post-hegemonic power can be distinguished from its earlier variant hegemonic power. What are the key differences between post-hegemonic power and hegemonic power, Louis? Hegemonic power is a form of power in which a population's convinced of something, pretty much. It's often associated with the term of ideology. For those who are interested, it's a notion that goes back to the work of a prominent Marxist, Antonio Gramsci. And it refers to a form of power, like I said, where a population is convinced of a certain idea, a certain way of seeing the world, a certain way of wanting to behave, and then it produces social relations in that way. And so the interesting thing about it is there's a bit of distance in between the expression of power and the impact of power. It's sort of like controlling the narrative in all of the newspapers in a state. You can convince the population of things if you can control the media. Yeah, That's a really kind of clear example of hegemonic power. But then post-hegemonic power is quite different. Mm. There's not so much distance in between the performance of power and the act. It's a form of power that operates at the sight of the smartphone, at the sight of the individual. It's not a top-down form of power. It's a form of power that occurs as people look at media, as people do things. It's part of their actions. Yeah, this is captured nicely, I think, in Scott Lash's distinction between ontology and epistemology. So he associates hegemonic power with epistemology and post-hegemonic power with ontology. Now, for those of you listening to this episode and you have no idea what those terms mean, I imagine you're probably scratching your head at the moment. But I think if we break it down for you, (laughs) it'll make a lot more sense and you'll actually see that Lash and indeed Beer have a lot of interesting things to say. It's actually quite insightful, this distinction. So let's break down what is epistemology and what is ontology. What is epistemology, Louis? 
Epistemology is the production of knowledge. Yeah. It's about what <laughs> constitutes knowledge, what constitutes facts and information in a society. Yeah. How do we know what we know? Yeah. All right. Yeah. And what is ontology? <laughs> ontology is related to the nature of being. How yeah. do things come into existence? Yeah. What does it mean to be a human and how does a human come into existence in the world? Yeah. So one is about knowledge. The other is about being. Why would you associate hegemonic power with epistemology? I think it's, that one is a little bit clearer. Mm. It's a bit more straightforward to understand. When you have hegemonic power, it's about what people know, mm. right? It's, it's, it's a contestation of knowledge. Mm. It's about what information gets the privileged position of yeah. being truth or yeah. being fact in a society. But ontology is about the contestation of being. How are people existing in society? And the reason why post-hegemonic power is associated with that is because it demonstrates that power operates on the inside. Like there's like a distance, isn't there, Louis? A distance between you and the hegemonic form of power. But there's not so much that though, is there in post-hegemonic power? What is that difference? Well, the difference is that with post-hegemonic power, the power becomes active as people are constituted, as people are formed, as behaviours come into existence. Like with the concert, yeah. the power is, is expressed as people lift up their phones to enjoy the, the concert. The expression of the power is the shaping of what it means to attend a concert, what it means to do that. Now, algorithms are a key part of the article here. I mean, it's in the title, right? The title of the article is Power Through the Algorithm. So algorithm are a key part of social media technologies, of new media technologies. And I want to focus on that aspect of this article. It almost goes without saying that algorithms now are all around us. Behind the scenes of so many aspects of our lives are algorithms. In what ways is that true, Louis? Well... As someone who does a little bit of travel but doesn't often learn much about places before they get there, <laughs> I'm highly reliant on Google Maps. I'm highly reliant on just Google searches and yeah. just looking things up. And all of that information that I'm learning about my environment yeah, that's has right. been sorted well, and been produced it, by algorithms. I mean, Google Maps is a great example, right? <laughs> like when you ask Google to tell you how to get from point A to point B, there's not some dude or dudette. <laughs> who tells you like, oh, you should go f and take this road and that road. There's no one with local knowledge, mm. no actual human being who's telling you that each time you make a request. Mm. There is a computer program mm. that's underpinned by algorithms that tells you what route you should take. Mm. I often wonder whether two people visiting a city, because the way I travel is pretty common now, and if one was on, say, the Apple infrastructure and one was on the Google infrastructure, would they see the same city? If their algorithms are shaped to different yeah. things, sends them to different tourist sites, sends yeah. them to do different things, they're going to experience different cities because of the way the city has already mm. been sorted for them by their algorithmic systems. Yeah, and, and I think algorithms are very, very powerful they really shape many aspects of our reality. This is a point that Beer wants to highlight. You can think of things like dating apps. Who do you get to see? Who sees your profile? 
You can also think of algorithms when it comes to Spotify and streaming services. Maybe this this very podcast popped up as a recommendation yeah. after you listen to something else. Or I don't even know what recommendations you'd get if you are subscribed to this podcast. <laughs> you know, it, it might be some weird stuff. I have no idea, right? But again, there's not directly a human being involved in, this, in making these recommendations. Is part of a broader algorithmic infrastructure that sort of permeates our life. And again, this is a key point that Beer keeps wanting to underscore, that algorithms, new media technologies, they're all around us. It's really difficult to escape. And so algorithms aren't just simply these things that exist. It's the complexity that he wants to focus on. Something happens when algorithms get so complex, when algorithmic systems become almost unwieldy to understand. And we can see this in the way that it's difficult to tell how they work sometimes. Mm. And part of that might certainly be because of like institutional secrecy, the people who develop these algorithms want to keep them a secret. But part of it is that there's so many inputs, mm. right? There's so many variables that it's actually kind of hard to get your head around. But even there's even, it's even more than that. It's the fact that these algorithms, they aren't always visible to us, mm. right? They're so ubiquitous, but we don't always know when they're at work and not just when they're at work, but how they work. And so if you, Start to think of that when you start to consider what is significant about that. According to Beer, this leads us to understand how rules in society are formed. And he makes this really interesting observation through the work of Scott Lash that there are usually three types of rules in society. There are constitutive rules, there are regulative rules, and there are also what he calls generative rules. So... Constitutive rules and regulative rules, these belong to the order of hegemonic power. And what they refer to are rules that create systems, right? Because constitutive rules are those that, if we think about it from a very basic point of view, they kind of define the rules of the game, okay? So there are constitutive rules for like the sport of tennis. Mm. Constitutive rules tell people who want to play tennis what equipment to bring, how you should score the game, how wide the tennis court should be, how high the net should be put at. Regulative rules are those that keep the game running. That's relatively straightforward. What happens when someone streaks, you know, in the middle of a match? What happens when someone throws their racket at the other player? It tries to understand how we can regulate and we can keep the game going. But generative rules, these don't belong to hegemonic power. These are rules that are able to create new rules. And when we think about that in terms of algorithms and how advanced they are, with terms like machine learning and AI, this is the idea that technology isn't simply something that's programmed. It can be programming of itself. Mm. Right. So how would we get our head around this idea of generative rules and, and linking that with post-hegemonic order? 
So a good example of that is the way that algorithms learn from the behavior of people and then alter the experience based on that behavior. So, for instance, there's been a lot of kind of media stories and research recently about how social media platforms adjust what people see based on their what they clicked on, what they slowed down and scrolled over. Mm-hmm. And it's, there's been quite a lot of critical media because... There's been concerns that some of the way the algorithms are functioning are creating some pretty full-on identities and some pretty full-on behaviours because Mm. all the algorithms programmed to care about is to keep eyeballs on the screen. (laughs) It doesn't care if those eyeballs are watching something pretty horrible. It just wants to keep the eyeballs (laughs) there. So it keeps on adjusting the content and can make someone's opinions more and more extreme because that potentially keeps them watching (laughs) whatever it is that they're viewing. So this kind of then brings us a little bit full circle because then we're now talking about Web 2.0 technologies and Beer has tried to link up, again, discussions around new media with how we should assess, how we should evaluate Web 2.0 technologies. And the picture he tries to paint is a very mixed one. There might be some democratic potentials. There might be some capacities for us new media technologies to be empowering but at the same time, they also institute new forms of subjugation, new power inequalities. And again, he's trying to emphasize here that algorithms are a key part of all of this, that you can't understand power in the 21st century in terms of how it's expressed without some reference to algorithms. And if we take this very seriously, we begin to view Web 2.0 technologies in a very new way. Which leads us to a segment we like to call Say What? (laughs) When we look at a quote in need of further explanation, and Louis, I think you have one for us. I do. Here we go. Uh, Web 2.0 applications are clearly close-up technologies that are on the inside of the lives of users. The acts of participation and collaboration that define the Web 2.0 era are generating information, sensitive and private information, to be harvested and used in the algorithmic processes of sorting and the like. As data comes to find us, so the things we encounter and consequently our experiences and views of the world will be shaped by the sorting and filtering of algorithms. So he's really just trying to argue that algorithms have a huge impact on our lives, but particularly they shift our understanding of how power is expressed. Mm. And I think there's something that I find really powerful about this whole argument, because not only does it demonstrate how significant algorithms are, how powerful they are, how, how huge the impact they have on us is, but it also says that we don't really see it. We yeah, don't actually right. comprehend I mean, it. In fact, there's a very interesting phrase he uses. He argues how algorithms can be hidden and compressed. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't know how any of you came across this podcast. Maybe you were assigned this podcast for a course, but maybe you just stumbled upon it. But how did that happen? I mean, if you think about in the era of hegemonic power, you could maybe point to a particular person and you could say, all right, there's a discourse forming around blank Mm -hmm. that everyone should be listening to the Sociology of Everything podcast (laughs) brought to you by UniSA. (laughs) But that's not what's going on now, is it? There's a variety of different reasons why you might be listening to this very podcast, and those reasons might be opaque to us. 
But really, let's be honest, the reason why you're listening to this podcast is just because it's great. That's, that's a universal truth, <laughs> that's, isn't that's it? That's right. You just sense yeah. that this podcast is out there <laughs> and we're drawn it ca- to it. Called out to you. Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, before we self-aggrandize a bit too much, we should bring this episode to a close. Thanks very much always for listening. We'll catch you in the next episode. See you later. The Sociology of Everything podcast is created and hosted by Eric Sue and Louis Everest. It's produced and edited by Eric Sue, with special assistance from UniSA Online and UniSA Justice Society. To learn more about studying sociology and other programs online or in person at the University of South Australia, visit unisa.edu.au where you can search for more details. The Sociology of Everything podcast is primarily recorded on the lands of the Ghana people. The hosts of the podcast would like to pay their respects to elders past, present, and emerging. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more about the podcast, visit our website at sociologypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.